I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. My name is Alexander Rosen, the executive director here at the Long Now Foundation. And this June marks Long Now's 20th anniversary. And so that, that seems like a really long time for an upstart uh, nonprofit here in San Francisco. But it's really, it really means we still have 9,980 years <laughs> left to go. And I'm often asked, how, how do we expect Long Now to actually be a 10,000-year institution? And we've survived year to year on uh, member contributions like yours and grants. And this year, we decided that we're going to make a concerted effort to put the majority of the funds that we raise into a fund that will actually be leveraged over the next 10,000 years into keeping us around. So this year we made these little kits. They are Grow Your Own Bristlecone Pine Kit. <laughs> Inside here are seeds for one of the oldest living organisms on the planet. And the kit itself is actually the greenhouse that allows you to get it started and then plant it in your own garden. And then in you know, just four to 5,000 years, your tree will look like this. So if you are able to make a contribution uh, at the end of this year, whatever it is, just make it a whole bunch more and we'll put that in the fund. Uh, so that's our plan this year. And so we really appreciate uh, anything that you can give. If we can get it up to $500,000, it goes into active management and we're able to really uh, turn this into something that starts providing income to Long Now year after year. And then as we go in uh, more and more years, we're going to build that up into something that actually produces the, uh, a good chunk of our annual budget. And so thank you for anybody that can uh, donate this year. We really appreciate it. The other thing that I'd love to update you on is that uh, just uh, a few days ago at the New York City Documentary Film Festival, uh, two filmmakers that we had worked with uh, almost a year ago, uh, Jimmy Goldblum and Adam Weber, uh, released this three-minute mini-documentary that turns out to be a great reminder as to why we're building a 10,000-year clock. Enjoy. I wanted a symbol of the future in the same way that, say, the pyramids are a symbol of the past. I wanted to build something that gave us that sense of connection. And that's how I started thinking about the clock. My name is Danny Hillis, and I'm building a clock that will last for 10,000 years. When I had been a kid, the future had been out in the year 2000. Even when it got to be in the 1990s, we were still sort of just imagining what the year 2000 would be like. It was almost as if the future had been shrinking my entire life. Danny Hillis sent around an email that he wanted to build a clock that would last 10,000 years. What? 10,000 year clock? Why? Danny had been building some of the fastest supercomputers in the world. He was pretty much the golden boy of MIT. 
Everybody wanted to do things faster and faster and faster. I needed to slow down, stretch out, think on a different time scale. Any engineer, of course, wants to build something that lasts. But that doesn't mean it's easy to build. How do you make rolling elements that last for 10,000 years? The clock is built out of gears and levers and things that Galileo would have understood. One of the ways we keep the clock accurate is to synchronize it to the sun. That requires a lens like this big around out of quartz. Then exactly at solar noon, the chimes begin to play. The chime generator was developed by Brian Eno. They worked out a way of ringing 10 bells in a different sequence each day for 10,000 years. From the very beginning, I wanted to be able to make a little model of the clock. Our original prototype clock. And then make a bigger one, and make a bigger one, and make a bigger one. I realized that the clock couldn't go into a building. It had to be in a mountain. In trying to design a 10,000-year clock, we're invested in generational thinking and hoping to kind of answer the question, are we being good ancestors? There is a problem of people not believing in the future. A long-term clock challenges those short-term civilizational stories. I'm very optimistic about the future. I'm not optimistic because I think our problems are small. I'm optimistic because I think our capacity to deal with problems are great. Hi, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Um, the Long Now is half future, the last 10,000 years and the next 10,000 years. And we have enough arguments about the past. And the arguments about the future tend to be more stupid <laughs> than, than they need to be. Uh, this was pointed out about eight years ago when our speaker tonight uh, gave a salt talk on uh, expert political judgment. Uh, the pundits are not only often wrong, they're more wrong than if they were throwing darts blindly at a dartboard. And way more wrong than the sort of ordinary person paying attention. And it's kind of bleak knowledge. Uh, so when I called our speaker about his new book and about maybe giving another salt talk in relation to it, he said that, yeah, eight years ago he was kind of cursing the darkness. Um, but now... He's got some candles to light. Please welcome Phil Tetlock. So um, thank you so much, Stuart, for the introduction. It's great to be here again. Uh, about six years ago, um, my wife, Barbara Mellers, uh, and I were still on the faculty at the University of California, Berkeley. And we, um, we got an offer from the US government that we couldn't refuse. Um, we were visited by three officials from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Um, 
two of whom were really interested in um, answering the question up there, how, how much better can we get when we get serious about keeping score? And one of whom was decidedly less enthusiastic about pursuing that. Um, but the two who wanted to do it did prevail. And as a result, um, IARPA, uh, Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, the research and development branch of um, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, IARPA commissioned a, a series of forecasting tournaments that ran between 2011 and ended in June 2015. And those tournaments um, revealed a lot about what we can and can't learn when we get serious about keeping score. And those are some of the major things I want to share with you, um, share with you tonight. Um, <clears throat> so the short answer um, to the question, what can we learn, is, is, is quite a bit. And the right analogy here is not Nostradamus and prophecy. The right analogy here is optometry. Uh, the right analogy is the increasing clarity with which you can see the Snell and eye chart when you get a good optometrist who fits you with some better, better glasses. Um, because what you can achieve uh, when you keep score systematically in forecasting tournaments is you can achieve improvements in accuracy that range from about 50 to 80 uh, percent. And I'll explain as the talk goes on what it means to improve accuracy, but it's Im improved realism in your assessments of the odds of events occurring. 50 to 80 percent is nothing, nothing to sneeze at, um, but it means that um, you're not going to see everything perfectly. A lot of things are still going to be pretty blurry. Our very best forecasters and our very best algorithms, uh, when they're trying to see, assign realistic probability estimates to events of national security relevance in this four-year span, uh, they were able to assign probabilities of about 72 to 76 percent to things that occur and correspondingly 24 to about 28 percent probabilities to things that did not occur. So they, they certainly weren't achieving godlike omniscience. They weren't saying virtually 100 percent to things that occur and zero to things that don't. There was a lot of irreducible uncertainty in these questions because the questions were covering such a heterogeneous and difficult array of questions. They, they were asking questions about everything from whether Greece would live the, leave the Eurozone to whether Russia would um, uh, invade deeper into the Ukraine, uh, whether there'd be violent Sino-Japanese clashes in the East China Sea, uh, what would happen to Spanish bond yield spreads, Ebola, H5N1, Arctic sea ice mass. Extraordinarily heterogeneous array of questions. Nobody could have expertise on more than a tiny fraction of these, of these, of these diverse questions. Um, but our best forecasters and our best algorithms were able to do a remarkably good job, good enough to win the forecasting tournament, good enough even to assign to outperform uh, intelligence analysts who had access to classified information. And the story of this talk is essentially a story about how they managed to do that. Now, I'd like to put this whole effort into context with a clip from a movie uh, that many of you may have seen, Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, the inimitable James Gandolfini plays Leon Panetta, the former director of the CIA, uh, also former congressman from California. Um, and he, he has around him a table of advisors, and he's asking them, um, how likely is it that uh, Osama bin Laden is indeed living in that mystery compound in the Pakistani city of Abbottabad? And uh, this is the clip, and then I want us to meditate a bit uh, after we see the clip on uh, some of the, uh, the issues here. Um. 
I'm about to go look the president in the eye. Then what I'd like to know, no fucking bullshit. It's where everyone stands on this thing. Now, very simply, is he there or is he not fucking there? We all come at this through the filter of our own past experiences. Now, I remember Iraq WMD very clearly. I fronted that, and I can tell you the case for that was much stronger than this case. A fucking yes or a no. We don't deal in certainty. We deal in probability, and I'd say there's a 60% probability he's there. I concur. 60%. I'm at 80%. Their OPSEC is what convinces me. You guys ever agree on anything? Well, I agree with Mike. We're basing this mostly on DTE reporting, and I spent a bunch of time in those rooms. I'd say it's a soft 60, sir. I'm virtually certain there's some high-value target there. I'm just not sure it's been Laden. Well, this is a little bit of a clusterfuck, isn't it? I'd like to know what Maya thinks. We're all incorporating her assessment into ours. 100% he's there. Okay, fine, 95%, because I know certainty freaks you guys out, but it's 100. <laughs> okay, well, um, this is why we're in the dark ages still. <laughs> um, that, uh, there are many ways to look at what just happened there, but the little smirk that crosses James Gandolfini's face at the end pretty much signals uh, a very common attitude, and that is probabilities are for wimps. Uh, they're for people who don't have the intestinal fortitude to stand up and take, take, take a stand. And um, the woman at the end is indeed the hero of the movie, and she believes it's 1.0 that Osama is in that compound in Abbottabad. Now, um, let's do a couple of thought experiments with this. Um, here we've got uh, President Obama, who's surrounded by a bunch of advisors, and uh, this is you know, the next higher up level, really. You know, there's the, the, op the director of national intelligence is there, Hillary Clinton's there, um, <clears throat> uh, vice president is there, and so forth. And Leon Panetta, the real Leon Panetta, is there as well. Um, and by the way, whose attitude toward probability is radically different from that of James Gandolfini, but we'll put, put, that, put that to the side. Um, let's just say for sake of argument that uh, everybody around the table says is a 70% probability that um, Osama is in the compound in Abbottabad. Um, what should President Obama conclude from that advisory circle? What is the what's, what inference should he draw from that? And most of you, you know, the question is just ridiculously easy. Uh, obviously, if everyone's saying it's seventy, and he knows nothing else, uh, he doesn't doesn't have much basis for concluding any, anything other than seventy percent probability. Um, but now, assume for sake of argument that um, that the people around the table. Uh, are working from very different sources of information. Um, in the case of the, um, the movie clip, you're dealing with people inside the intelligence community, senior people inside the intelligence community. In each of them, assume you had, each of them had access to um, a different type of information. So one guy has information about code breaking, another guy has information about satellite reconnaissance, another guy has information about uh, human intelligence and so forth. Uh, 
And each of them, e even though they're drawing on very different types of information, reaches the conclusion that the probability is 70%. Um, what now should the president conclude is the true probability? It's more than 70%. That's exactly right. That's exa but how much more? Well, that's mathematically indeterminate, but the statisticians who worked with the Good Judgment Project and the forecasting tournaments were very clever people. And uh, you know, they basically worked it out. And they, 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 this, was, this is one of the key things that powered the winning algorithms. Uh, and the 70% probability when there were diverse inputs into the forecasts started to look more like 85 or 90% probability. Um, at any rate, that's one version of the thought experiment, and it is that diversity of perspectives helps. Um, if you have genuine intellectual diversity in the room, uh, you're justified in extremizing to some degree. Now, how much you're justified in extremizing is you know, an interesting question. Now, in the actual story, uh, in which President Obama was uh, being uh, given advice from his top, top people, he got a range of probabilities, uh, somewhere bottoming out around 40%, uh, and going all the way up to 95 plus percent, with a center of gravity, a median around 75% uh, probability of um, Osama being located there. Now, when President Obama got that information, he didn't use James Gandolfini's salty language. He didn't say, you know, this is a clusterfuck, this is rah, rah, rah. <laughs> um, He didn't uh, get all upset. Uh, he, but he said, look, uh, look guys, this this this. This feels like a coin flip. It feels like 50-50. That was his summary of, of it. Now, I don't know exactly what he meant by 50-50. He may have simply meant he didn't have enough information to make a decision, uh, which would have been not a not, not, not unreasonable thing to say. Uh, but if he meant 50-50 as a literal probability, it's an odd thing to say. Uh, because uh, we know, for example, that um, President Obama is a big sports fan. And people who pay any attention to sports uh, know that betting and odd setting is a very common activity in sports. Yeah, President Obama likes March Madness a lot. Imagine he were sitting around uh, a TV in the White House, and he had a bunch of friends, and they're watching a Duke about to play a basketball game in March Madness. And, they, and they, say, go, they go around the room, and they say, what do you think the odds are of Duke winning? And they give the very same probabilities uh, that President Obama got from his advisors on the location of Osama, you know, low of about 40, up to about 95, center of gravity around 75%. Would he have said, sounds like 50-50? Or would he have said, hmm, sounds like three to one? Uh, I think to ask the question is to answer it. He's a, he's, a, he's, he's, a, he's a reasonably numerate guy who likes sports, and he would have said, sounds like three to one. But he didn't say that in the national security context. Um, the best forecasters in the IARPA tournament do that. Uh, they tend to be very granular. They're very determined to um, parse uncertainty as finely as possible. Um, now, we can, we can come back to this issue about whether, um, about how justified one is in becoming granular uh, in this domain. Uh, in the book Super Forecasting, we, we talked to the chief risk officer of a hedge fund, uh, AQR, um, Aaron Brown, who also happens to be a very good poker player. And he said, you, you can tell the difference between a great poker player and a talented amateur because the great poker player knows the difference between a 60-40 bet and a 40-60 bet. And then he paused and said, no, more like 55-45, 45-55. Or indeed, could even be 52-48, 48-52. Um, 
the, be the very best poker players tend to be more granular. Now, you, you could say that, well, poker's different, for goodness sake. It's not like Osama bin Laden, or it's not like whether Greece is going to leave the Eurozone, or all these different questions that are in the IARPA tournaments. Um, poker is repeated play. There's a well-defined sampling universe, the deck of cards. Uh, everybody knows from textbook basic stat that this is where probability theory applies. Uh, how can you possibly apply probability theory to unique historical events that unfold but once? Um, this is indeed the question IARPA was wrestling with. Uh, is it possible to make meaningful probability judgments of events that occur essentially only once, whether it has to do with Spanish bond yield spreads or Greek leaving, Greece leaving the Eurozone, or it has to do with what the latest mischief Putin might be up to, or, um, and so forth, any, and virtually any of these events around the world. Uh, that is the big question. What are the limits of probabilistic reasoning? How far can you extend it? How useful is it to extend it? And what would our what would our society look like? What would our debates look like if instead of making categorical claims like yes or no, he's either there or he's not there, or, or we either should do this or shouldn't do that, what if we got in the habit as a, as a social order of making uh, claims in more nuanced and granular ways? So the IARPA forecasting tournaments. Uh, forecasting tournaments are weird worlds. Uh, they're level playing fields uh, in which you determine who can do the best job of assigning the most accurate probabilities to events. And uh, in the IARPA context, we had thousands of forecasters who made a million plus judgments on hundreds of questions uh, IARPA deemed to be of national security relevance. So these are a big scale thing. And level playing field tournaments feel very unnatural. Um, they're very hard to, it's very hard to persuade people that this is a good idea inside organizations to do this. Uh, as I said, three people came to visit us, and one of them was not at all enthusiastic. And the person who was not at all enthusiastic had a lot to lose uh, from the implementation of forecasting tournaments. And the people who, people who were enthusiastic were more young outsider upstarts who, uh, who wanted to shake things up. Um, I mean, I'm... I've been doing forecasting tournaments a long time, I've been back to 1984, uh, just, just after I got tenure at Berkeley. Uh, so I, I've been doing this for a long time. And when you get to be senior in an organization, your enthusiasm for forecasting tournaments diminishes. Um, imagine, I, you know, instead of being a professor, I were an intelligence analyst, and I clawed my way up the intelligence hierarchy, and I were... You know, I was a senior China specialist in the National, Intel in the National Intelligence Council. I helped to draft the National Intelligence Estimates on China, and I, I'm the go-to guy when Xi Jinping shows up in town and helped to draft presidential daily briefings. And, um, got a lot of status in the organization, and some upstart researchers from IARPA, whatever the God, God's name that is, uh, from the, uh, in the office of the Director of National Intelligence come along and say, hey, you know what we're going to do? We want to run forecasting tournaments now. And that means uh, you know, these senior people like Tetlock and the more junior people like 25-year-olds uh, are going to be competing to see who can generate the most accurate probability estimates of what Chinese economic growth rates look like or what China, if there's going to be a violent clash with Japan and the East China Sea or, or whatnot. Uh, we're going to have a level playing field tournament. It, I, I think to ask the question is to answer it. Uh, no way. <laughs> You're going to do your best to disparage and to uh, trivialize an effort like that, and that is indeed what happens um, inside many organizations. Nonetheless, uh, 
the impossible happened. Uh, it, was, it was rather like uh, Goliath lending David slingshot money. Uh, IARPA, IARPA decided to give tens of millions of dollars to uh, research teams in major universities around the country, of which we were one, the Good Judgment Project, and uh, we slugged it out against each other, uh, the other research teams, the other universities, and also slugged it out against intelligence analysts inside the intelligence community. Um, so it's, uh, it's very odd that uh, a government agency would do something like that. It violates the most basic principles of political science, uh, poli-sci 101. Bureaucracies don't you know, uh, support things that could be potentially embarrassing. <laughs> um, now, th this is a really different way of thinking about the future. It requires moving beyond what, what we call vague verbiage forecasting. Uh, the vast majority of times, when, we, when you read New York Times or Wall Street Journal or whatever your ideological uh, preference might be, uh, op-eds, they're full of vague verbiage forecasting. They, they're things like, this might happen, it could happen, it's a possibility, a real possibility, it's probable, maybe, distinct possibility, risky, some chance... Slam dunk or sure thing. George Tenet, of course, made the mistake of saying slam dunk or sure thing with respect to weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, the key thing here to note is when someone says something might happen or something could happen, it could mean anything from about 0.2 to about 0.8. It, 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 the probabilities are all, all over the place. Uh, and that's very advantageous if you live in a blame game culture like Washington, D.C., um, if, I, if, I, if I say to you there's a distinct possibility Putin might do something, and he does it, I can wave my finger at you and say, I told you there was a distinct possibility of that. And if it doesn't happen, I can say, I merely said it was possible. Um, I'm covered. Uh, whereas if I make a more definitive probability judgment, and it seems to be on the wrong side of maybe, uh, people are never going to forget it. Um, and this is a mistake that is commonly made. Uh, even really smart journalists uh, make this mistake. Uh, David Leonhard, who's one of the smartest, uh, most quantitatively sophisticated journalists around, uh, created the upshot at the New York Times, um, wrote, when Obamacare was narrowly upheld by the Supreme Court in 2012 by 5-4, he said, well, you know, those, those, those smart aleck economists uh, and their prediction markets, they got it wrong. Uh, they said there was a 75% probability of the law being overturned, and lo and behold, the law was not overturned. Um, well... Let, think about it this way. If prediction markets make hundreds of predictions on, on, on issues, and they've done it over many years, and it turns out that they're pretty well calibrated, which means when they say things are 75% likely, those things happen about 75% of the time, uh, which means that 25% of the time they don't happen. So if you're going to throw out prediction markets the first time they wind up on the wrong side of maybe when they say 75%, you're going to throw out prediction markets very fast. You're going to throw out a tool that's pretty useful. Um, and that's true for these, the, the very best forecasters we have in this tournament. They're often wrong. They're often on the wrong side of maybe. Um, but at least you know where they are. You know where they stand. They're not saying distinct possibility. They're saying things that um, can't be tested in each individual case, but cumulatively, when you look at their entire track record, they can be, they can be tested. So that's why there's almost total uncertainty about what how accurate the, the big thought leaders of today, the people who dominate the op-ed pages are. Um, whether you're left, right, or center, it doesn't really matter. Uh, they all traffic in vague verbiage forecasts, and vague verbiage forecasting is a really good way of preserving your long-term credibility.
uh, because a lot of people are going to have the David Leonhardt reaction. If you say 0.8 and it doesn't happen, you're going to get clobbered. Uh, so it's, it's an understandable political response by pundits to do this. Uh, it is, it is um, it's an adaptive strategy. Uh, it's an adaptive strategy for surviving in a blame game world. It is not an adaptive strategy for learning to become as granular and well calibrated as human beings are capable of becoming in the environments that we live in. Uh, so if your goal is learning, pure learning, forecasting tournaments should be your game. If your goal is political posturing and ideological kabuki dances with lots of vague verbiage forecasting, then <laughs> this is the game. So how do we measure accuracy in the ARPA tournament? Um, we measure it essentially the same way meteorologists learn to measure it, and, it's, and basically the same way meteorologists learn to become one of the best calibrated professional groups ever studied. Uh, meteorologists are pretty darn good at it. They're often ridiculed. I mean, weather, people love to ridicule, ridicule weather forecasters, but um, when, when, a, when a forecaster says there's a 90% likelihood of rain and it rains, um, there's a way of computing accuracy. You, can, uh, you code reality as 0 or 1, depending on whether the event occurs. So if the event occurred, you code reality as 1. And you deviate 1 from 0.9, and you deviate 0.1 from 0, and you square them, and you get 0.02, which is a really, really good Breyer score. Uh, and you do the same thing for these other things, and you accumulate, and you average, and you have an accuracy score. Uh, this is called a Breyer score. It's one of many possible proper scoring rules. And I can explain later, if you want, why, why we call them proper scoring rules. But they're essentially rewarding people for reporting their true beliefs. Uh, you should report beliefs that you're, you're, you should report probabilistic beliefs as if you were uh, willing to put your money where your mouth was. And, uh, affix uh, uh, your, your like, like gambling odds. So when you move from 0.9 to 0.99, you're moving from 9 to 1 odds to 99 to 1 odds. And you take a big penalty hit, a big credibility hit, if you're moving in the wrong direction. Um, just as you take a big financial penalty if you're willing to bet 99 to 1 as opposed to 9 to 1. Uh, so Breyer scoring does have that, that, does have that mathematical property. Uh, so the Breyer scoring continuum. Uh, the best possible score is if you have a perfectly accurate theory of a perfectly deterministic system, like, say, Foucault's pendulum, you're going to be right virtually all the time. You're going to have a bias score very, approaching zero. If you're never right, if you're the opposite of what you say always happens, you're going to have a bias score of two. You'd be a reverse clairvoyant. And the dart-throwing chimpanzee would put you in the, in the 0.5 range. Uh, now... Breyer scores, it's a little bit technical stuff, and we'll move on, um, can be broken into two components, calibration and resolution. Um, here's a forecaster who never says anything uh, lower than 0.4, and never says anything higher than 0.6. This is a forecaster who never says anything more than minor shades of maybe. This is a forecaster who uh, is also perfectly calibrated. So when the forecaster says 40%, things happen 40% of the time. Forecaster says 60%, things happen 60% of the time. This is pretty good, but it's not very interesting. I mean, this is someone, you just minor inflections of maybe. Um, and so people typically want more than calibration out of forecasters. They want forecasters who are willing to go out on a limb when appropriate and tell them that something is 90% likely or 10% likely, like this forecaster. This, this combines you know, perfect calibration with, 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 a great, with very impressive resolution. No human being on the planet, by the way, is this good. 
um, on questions of IARPA level difficulty. Nobody approaches this. Um, and this, of course, is what omniscience would look like. You call this the God profile. Um, you, know, you assign probabilities of one. Only pro when things occur, you've, al you've always assigned a probability of one. When things don't occur, you've always assigned a probability of zero. So there is, you know, there's no uncertainty whatsoever. God, this is a world in which God does not play dice with the cosmos. Um, so that's how, roughly how we keep score. Now, it, the question of the day, I guess, is how did the Good Judgment Project forecasters, we call them super forecasters, managed to do as well as they did. After every year, we skimmed off the top 2%, and we kept doing that year after year, so now we've identified a cohort of several hundred super forecasters. Uh, how did we manage to, um, how, how did they manage to do as well as they did? And some people say, well, maybe they didn't, they just regressed toward the mean the next year. And the interesting thing is they didn't regress very much toward the mean. Mo most forecasters do, but there was something about being elevated to the status of super forecasters and the desire to maintain that status and to work with other super forecasters. They'd worked hard to achieve this, and then they had an opportunity to work with other like-minded people, and they did remarkably well. They, there was virtually no regression toward the mean, which is really weird because this is a world in which there's a lot of chance, so there should be regression toward the mean. And you know you see that with the people who didn't weren't out the people who were just a little bit below the supers that in the previous year the top three to four percent they do regress significantly toward the mean about seventy and in, in, in proportions that suggest there's about a seventy percent skill thirty percent chance component to performance here. Um, but so the super forecasters are doing very well they're doing pretty consistently well and they work together in teams very well. Um, so what's going on here? And, and how, in, in heaven's name, were they able to do better than intelligence analysts who are doing this for a living, uh, who, have, um, who are undoubtedly every bit as smart as the super forecasters, uh, who are um, certainly, almost certainly more politically knowledgeable. They certainly have access to more information because they have access to classified information. Uh, so they're, they're equally, equal, more knowledgeable, equally intelligent, and I would posit equally open-minded as well. I think the intelligence analysts we've worked with are very open-minded people. Um, how, how is it that the super forecasters were able to outperform the professionals? And I think the answer is really very, very simple. It, it is that the people who were super forecasters were willing to make a bet. They were willing to make the bet that it's worth investing energy in cultivating the skill of subjective probability estimation of real-world events. It's a skill that can be cultivated and is worth cultivating, and that is why they were able to do as well as they did, I, I believe. Uh, it, it, in the, inside the intelligence community, I don't think it's a widely held view that probability estimation of these types of events is possible. And I think even among those people who think it is, it may be possible, there's a, there's a sense that if they were to do it, they would get their heads chopped off because of the political blame game dynamic. So they're working in a, diff in a different type of environment. But when you put intelligent, open-minded people in a forecasting tournament world in which all that matters is accuracy, ideology doesn't matter, blame game dynamics don't matter, status hierarchies don't matter, all those things are put aside this is, you get a pretty clean measure of what becomes possible. And what becomes possible is, is, is um, you know, basically you know, assigning probabilities of about 75% to things that, that do occur, 25% to things that don't, uh, which is massively better than the dart-throwing chimp, but it's also better than um, many other intelligent baselines. So you're, you're able to achieve improvements, just like your optometrist can help you, help you see a little bit further, 
these forecasting tournaments, the, 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 the training and experience and feedback you get in forecasting tournaments can, can improve your probabilistic foresight. It's not going to let you see black swans. It's not going to let you see around corners. It's not going to let you see, a mile, see the bottom line of the Snellen eye chart a mile away. It's not going to let you do those things. But it is going to let you assign better probabilities to events in a 12 to 18 month range than would otherwise have been possible. So I think that's the key thing. Winning, uh, the winning, winning, winning in the tournament requires a willingness to test the idea that subjective probability estimation is a skill that can be cultivated and is worth cultivating. That should be the first mantra here. Um, it also requires seeing beyond blame game ping pong. Uh, blame game ping pong is what the intelligence community is typically, the game the intelligence community is typically forced to play. Um, whoops. When the intelligence community predicted weapons that there would be there would be weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, uh, many people thought it was overcompensating uh, for its failure to connect the dots prior to the 9/11 attack. Um, there are a lot of um, misconceptions lurking here, but I, I think that <clears throat> the, the the key point is that the intelligence community one of the worst things you can do if you're a senior intelligence official is make the mistake you made last time. What you want to do is make, is make the other mistake. And then you can go back and forth, ping pong, ping, blame game, ping pong fashion. Well, okay, we missed 9-11, but we're sure not going to miss weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Oh, okay, we missed weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. We're, we're sure not going to do a false positive like that again with, 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 with Iran. Or in, 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 and back and forth you go. Um, that is a natural response, a natural human response to living in a blame game culture. Uh, it just... It's natural. Um, real learning requires moving to what engineers call higher receiver operating characteristic curves. Uh, and that's, this is what it looks like. Um, blame game ping pong means going back and forth like this little ball here. Uh, it means on the y-axis you've got the probability of scoring a hit. On the x-axis you have the probability of crying wolf. And the, all, the only thing you're doing here as the ball moves back and forth along this curve is you're not improving your accuracy. All you're doing is you're changing your threshold for um, uh, your, your tolerance for, 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 crying, for crying wolf. As the ball moves up, you're willing to make more, you're willing to make, to cry wolf more often in order to improve your hit rate. And as the ball goes down, you're willing to take a lower hit rate in order to reduce your crying wolf rate. You're not getting more accurate, you're just changing your threshold from making different types of errors. Um, what you really want to do with real learning is you want to um, oops. <clears throat> you want to move to higher curves. You want to move to higher performance curves where you can achieve a higher hit rate at a lower cost in crying wolf. Um, where the very highest receiver operating characteristic curve would be one where you can achieve a perfect hit rate at no cost in crying wolf. In no, no cost in crying wolf. Another key attribute that winning requires is that you have to understand the principles of error balancing. Um, what you discover very quickly when you participate in a forecasting tournament is that you're continually at risk of making opposing errors. Uh, there's the error of over-adjusting to new evidence and showing excessive volatility, being too jumpy. Uh, and then there's the error of sticking too rigidly to your preconceptions, not changing your mind enough. Uh, it turns out people make both errors. Uh, and when you, the only way you can learn to balance this is to practice in forecasting tournaments. Um, you're never going to get it right perfectly, 
but you're going to become much more deeply sensitized. It's going to become part of your cognitive apparatus that both errors are possible and you'll just almost automatically think about the possibility of each error and balance them in your head. Um, same thing for underconfidence versus overconfidence and same thing for overpredicting change and underpredicting change. Uh, the key here is, just get, is getting on the bicycle and riding it. Uh, and there's, there's no way that someone can stand up at a podium and tell you, give you abstract knowledge about cognitive research on errors and biases, and you, and you can in, in, gain the same benefits that you would gain from actually participating in forecasting tournaments. Um, it, it, the, the philosopher Polanyi likes, like, you used the analogy of trying to teach someone how to ride a bicycle by giving them a textbook on Newtonian mechanics and say, you know, th this is how you balance the centrifugal force and the blah 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 and the blah blah blah. Um, you're not going to learn how to ride a bicycle that way. You're not going to learn how to do well in forecasting tournaments without getting in the habit of making explicit probability judgments, getting feedback from those, and learning from experience. It's a deep, it's, it is a quite deeply experiential process. Um, so another aspect of the winning a forecasting tournament requires is knowing where to allocate cognitive effort. Uh, the very best forecasters are pretty adept at... Um, both avoiding spinning their wheels, but also not missing chances to do the doable. So, I mean, if you have the right causal theory, you know what, where Foucault's pendulum is going to go. Uh, that you know what planet you're on, you know the Newtonian physics, you're going to be okay. Um, if you spend a lot of time trying to predict roulette wheels, you're going to wind up like those poor souls going bankrupt in Las Vegas. I mean, there are lots of people who look at roulette wheels for very long periods of time, and they discern fi completely fictitious patterns. Uh, it's otherwise known as the gambler's fallacy. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a human tragedy, uh, and it's a cognitive fallacy. Uh, people are really good at seeing patterns in randomness, um, and uh, you need to be able to resist that. The, the sweet spot zone where super forecasters uh, uh, are pretty good at specializing is uh, in, the, in the questions where there is irreducible uncertainty, but there's also reducible uncertainty. So once hurricanes are, reach a certain level of maturity, no one can predict exactly when and where a hurricane will form because of butterfly effects and all that. But once a hurricane has reached a certain level of maturity, meteorologists have become very skillful at assigning uh, probabilities. They develop sophisticated models, and they use human intuition as well, operating on those models. And they've been able to bring, it, uh, bring, bring their accuracy scores, or their Breyer scores, way down, and their accuracy scores way up. Um, uh, so this is a good, a, a good example. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are many other examples uh, in which you don't, you don't want to spend a lot of time in the IRPA forecasting tournaments trying to predict short-term fluctuations in commodities and currency prices, for example. Uh, those are graveyards for forecasters. Um, economists have various reasons why that is the say so. There are various versions of the efficient markets hypothesis. Um, but there are, there are questions where uh, determined effort can pull you through, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples of that next. Um, another thing that is interesting about super forecasting is that uh, the, um, is, is striking the right balance between the inside and the outside views. Uh, super forecasters, even when they know very little about a problem, they find ways of getting some interesting leverage on it. Uh, so if you're asked a question, how likely is it that a particular dictator in sub-Saharan Africa is going to fall from power in the next year or so? Um, and you haven't heard of this dictator, you know virtually nothing about the country, you can at least get some predictive leverage from a very simple observation, and that is that dictators, once they've been in power a certain period of time, are likely to survive another year. How likely are they to survive another year? Well, 
95% or so. Um, so that's a very high probability of survival. Does that, that's not your final probability estimate, because if you learn that the dictator has, um, is 91 years old and has advanced prostate cancer, you're going to say, well, you know, I'm going to bring my probability down pretty fast. And if you learn there's a, a riots in the capital city and, and so forth, you, again, you're going to downplay your probability pretty rapidly. But this is balancing what Kahneman calls the outside and the inside views in your probability judgments. Uh, the way to start is with your outside view and then to uh, modify it appropriately in response to the inside view information. But the outside view at least helps you get in the right ballpark um, and helps you uh, avoid some other dysfunctions of judgment we can talk about later. Um, another key thing about winning is that it requires avoiding under and overreacting to news. Um, you can make the distinction between noise traders and smart money that Larry Summers once made. Um, the in the, on the left graph here, we have um, avoiding being sucker-punched by pseudo-diagnostic evidence. Um, now, th these are easy calls to make after the fact. They're hard calls to make before the fact. Um, so in, in, in early 2012, a lot of very smart people, a lot of attentive readers of the New York Times, say, uh, looked at uh, hundreds of thousands of Moscovites willing to come out into the winter cold and protest against Putin as a sign that Putin's days were numbered. Um, the best, our best forecasters were relatively unmoved by that spectacle. Uh, they, they thought, well, you know, this is a very unrepresentative segment of the Russian population, and, and Putin has a lock on sources of power. So they were unmoved by it, but the, the, the masses were moved. And the, you, you take a hit on your accuracy score when your probabilities shift away from reality in a dramatic fashion like that. Um, In, in, so one thing you want to avoid is moving your, moving your judgments in response to pseudo-diagnostic evidence. The other thing you want to be able to do, though, is move your judgments in response to subtly diagnostic evidence. Um, so again, using the distinction between the noise traders and the smart money, um, here the, in, in, on the right side, you've got the smart money moving in response to subtle information that the crowd misses. So the crowd, for example, missed the fact that Medvedev was very unlikely to decide to run for office because, excuse me, the, the, the crowd missed the fact that Medvedev was, was very unlikely to run for office. Uh, the, the smart money moved much faster to that conclusion. They, they thought it was more likely initially, but they thought it was very likely when they saw no evidence that, Putin, that Medvedev was doing any of the things that politicians normally do if they want to preserve power. Uh, there was a catastrophic plane crash that killed many of Russia's most talented hockey players in the, in the late summer of 2011. And this was a great opportunity for Medvedev, as then president of Russia, to grandstand and say he's going to fix aviation safety, the deplorable state of, the deplorable state of aviation safety in Russia. Um, he didn't do any of that. So just as Sherlock Holmes was able to solve a case because the dog didn't bark and draw the conclusion that the... Uh, culprit must have been known to the family, uh, the super forecasters were able, are better at drawing conclusions from non-occurrences, um, which tend to be more subtle sorts of diagnostic indicators. So the, 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 these are just some of the strategies that super forecasters use. There are many others we could talk about. Um, one of my favorites is, we, we, maybe we'll leave it for talking with Stuart later, is uh, the ways in which super forecasters handled the, the uh, Grexit or the, the um, debate over whether Greece would be leaving the Eurozone this summer, last summer. Now, overall, you know, the super forecasters were a very important part of the Good Judgment Project strategy for winning the forecasting tournament. 
Um, and there were really four components of it. The super forecasters were component number one, uh, spotting and cultivating the right talent. Another thing that was important for winning the forecasting tournament was anti-groupthink groups. Uh, so uh, giving the group some guidance on how to operate uh, in ways that would uh, inoculate them somewhat from groupthink. Um, in particular, giving them some guidance on how to, how to disagree without being disagreeable. Um, engaging what Andy Grove once called constructive confrontation. The anti-group thing groups did well. It, 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 um, there was a debate, I think, in, within our research group of whether, whether having teams would be a good idea initially, um, because I, we all know that teams can often be less than the sum of their parts, not, not more than the sum of their parts. But the, the, when te teams that were properly configured and, and, and trained did better. Um, uh, the other forms of training, giving people some guidance in debiasing exercises and helping them avoid overconfidence and other, and other pathologies and teaching them about principles of error balancing uh, was helpful. And then the other thing that really was an important component of the winning strategy were these um, algorithms, uh, giving more weight to the more recent forecasts of the smarter forecasters. That's not too mysterious. Uh, but also um, extremizing to compensate for the conservatism of, of aggregates. Uh, which means that when, when, um, if everybody around the table is saying 0.7 and they're drawing on very different types of information, 0.7 isn't the right answer. Uh, the answer, right answer is going to be more extreme than that, and the, uh, uh, the elitist extremizing algorithms uh, tended, to, uh, tended to capitalize on that. <clears throat> so um, I think this is a situation you want to avoid. Um, this is, the, this is the dark humor of, of, of Gary Larson. Um, and like most of his cartoons, there are two different ways of looking at it. There's a superficial reading, which is these guys are really, really stupid. And then there is the somewhat deeper psychological lesson about the power of our preconceptions to shape our perceptions. Uh, I mean, we know that the last thought that's going to flash through the consciousness of these pilots is going to be, tragically, a misconception. Uh, they're so fixated on everything is going well that they even try to assimilate the mountain goat into the cloud bank, um, which is a, which is a, a depressing uh, observation. Uh, but, but I think it captures a rather deep psychological truth about the tenacity of, of, um, of theory-driven information processing in, in, in human thought. Then um, the final thing I want to talk about uh, is the potential value of this for how we conduct debates in our society. Um, there are people who look at this and they say, well, that's all fine and good, Professor, for your artificial forecasting tournaments, but it's never going to change the way the, way the world works. Um, you know, what matters can't be forecast, and what can be forecast doesn't matter, in a nutshell. It, it's sometimes called the rigor relevance trade-off. And the rebuttal here is, is adversarial collaboration and what we call Bayesian question clustering. Um, Imagine, for example, you take the debate over the Iranian nuclear agreement. You know, there's been a very testy debate over that. Um, and instead of you know, you know, each the hawks deploring the, the sellouts by the doves or the doves deploring the rigidity and the short-sightedness of the hawks, uh, you actually get down uh, to each side articulating testable uh, assertions about uh, the short to medium-term consequences of signing the agreement, because the agreement has been signed. Um, and the, um, 
That's a doable thing, it turns out. Um, with Peter Skoblik, I did a piece in the New York Times a few, about a month ago or so on, on how you could organize uh, adversarial collaboration tournaments around the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, but you, there are various sub-issues, like the effects on Iran's access to um, enriched uranium, uh, the effects on Iran's uh, ability and willingness to weaponize uh, missiles, uh, the effects on Iranian-U.S. relations, uh, whether they lock up more journalists, the effects on dissent, uh, the effects on Iranian behavior elsewhere in the Middle East, in Yemen, or the Persian Gulf, or Syria, and Lebanon. Uh, there are many possible ways of decomposing uh, this. And um, the key idea here is that you, instead of incentivizing the people participating in a debate to be more and more clever at... Um, uh, um, making fun of the other side, rhetorical ridicule. Instead of incentivizing rhetorical ridicule, you want to incentivize um, uh, thoughtful probability judgments, more nuanced probability judgments. The competition shifts from rhetorical put-downs to nuanced probability judgments. Uh, and that, I think, would be um, a shift in the right direction for us as a, as a society. Um, imagine, for example, that each side... Uh, has an opportunity to generate 10 questions, submit 10 questions to this forecasting tournament that it thinks it has a comparative advantage in answering. We think our side knows more than your side about these issues, and we're going to be able to generate better probability estimates. The other side can do the same thing. So you've got the hawks and the doves, and each side gets to generate 10 questions in which it thinks it has a comparative advantage. Um, this is a situation that is likely to, to depolarize un an unnecessarily polarized debate. Uh, because nobody is going to want to lose. Uh, nobody's going to be on a situation in which not only they, they can't answer the other side's questions, they can't even answer their own questions better than the other side. The other side can answer your questions better than you can. Uh, that is an, a serious political embarrassment. Um, and I think it's, it's, it, 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 it aligns the incentives in a way that um, are quite different from the way incentives normally work. Uh, normally, expressions of belief are expressions of loyalty to your ideological tribe. Uh, they're not attempts to understand the world and uh, make accurate judgments. Uh, so I think that if there is any big long-term contribution of this, I mean, I think there's a great value in giving the President of the United States more accurate probability estimates. I think there, that would be a valuable thing, and I think... Um, I, I, don't, I don't think the director of the CIA, George Tenet, would have said slam dunk or anything resembling slam dunk if he'd, been, if he'd existed in, a, in an intelligence community in which forecasting tournaments were regulating uh, the generation of probability estimates. Um, so I think that there's a great value in the President of the United States getting accurate probability judgments. But I think there's also great value uh, for, the, for us as citizens to start thinking about policy issues in more nuanced and circumspect ways, thinking about them as if we were about to enter into a forecasting tournament with our least preferred ideological uh, opponents. And um, why don't I, Stuart, is it time for maybe for us to stop and begin a conversation? Okay. Okay, I'll do that. That was great. Have a seat. I think we'll put you over here, is my understanding. Well, I think a uh, major cultural shift is in progress here and uh, you guys were here for the first signs of it is the thin edge of a big and important wedge um, one has to ask IARPA 
Intelligence ARPA uh, sponsored these contests and we're comparing results, I presume, to their professionals. Did that have any effect on leadership and policy? <laughs> Did intelligence get better because of these contests? Well, I, I don't think the U.S. intelligence community has a method of answering that question still. Um, I, I, I think but if they, they adopted your whole operation, they could. Well, they, they, they it's, it's a difficult thing. Uh, y y yes, I, I think they, the U.S. intelligence community changes in at a glacial pace. Uh, things happen very, very slowly inside government. Uh, they have begun to crowdsource judgments. Uh, mm -hmm. So they're recognizing there's a value of systematically aggregating diverse perspectives and mm -hmm. incorporating those into national intelligence estimates. I think there's a trend in that direction. There's a, there's a growing interest in uh, having people participate in forecasting exercises in which they make explicit probability judgments. Mm. Um, but I would think that given the dominance of the blame game culture in Washington, D.C., and given the rigidity of status hierarchies, uh, it, the change is going to be very slow. I mean, there are two different ways of looking at this. There is the economist way of looking at it, and there's the sociologist way of looking at it. The economist way of looking at it is uh, captured by the famous story of two economists, a senior one and a junior one, walking along a sidewalk at the University of Chicago. And the, senior, the, the junior one sees a $20 bill lying on the sidewalk and bends over to, to, to pick it up, and the senior one looks at him somewhat disdainfully and says, don't bother, if it were there, someone already would have picked it up. Right. Uh, so <laughs> the tournament, so the, the, the attitude some economists have toward forecasting tournaments is that, oh, look, uh, Tadlock, if this is such a great idea, people would have already done it. So forecasting tournaments would be oh, everywhere. God. And, and, and you know, this can't be a very good idea because it's like the $20 bill. Um, the other view, the sociological view, is, is an interesting mirror image of that because in, in this view, it doesn't really matter how good forecasting tournaments are. There's no way in God's green earth they're ever going to gain any traction when, A, you have the status hierarchy problem and people with higher status can only can only really hope to lose in a situation like that. And hmm. B, you've got the blame game problem. As soon as you're caught on the wrong side of maybe, your opponents are going to dump on you and your, mm -hmm. your credibility is going to be torn apart. So you better stick with vague verbiage. So from the sociological point of view, it doesn't matter how good tournaments are, they're never going to be adopted. Um, so it, it's, an it's an interesting dialectic there. I think both points of view, there's <laughs> there are elements of truth to both points of view. And I, I think what it means is progress is going to be halting. I think, there, I think forecasting tournaments are powerful tools for improving individual judgment and for improving the quality of societal debate. But I think they'll only gain traction slowly because the, um, the psychological and sociological sources of resistance run so deep. Well, that semi-answers the question from Don Moore. Are you optimistic about how this is going to change the U.S. intelligence community? Um, and so, so, well, so I, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm very, very cautiously optimistic. That in the, 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 I mean, it's, it's, extra, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> this does not surprise us. They're, they're asking for a number. How, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, 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 I would venture that by in, in ten, ten, 10 years from now, I would offer the prob probability of 0.7 that there will be uh, 10 times more numerical probability estimates and national intelligence estimates than there were in 2015. Okay. Something right. <laughs> like that. People are writing this down. That's off, by, by the way, that's off of a very low baseline. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so it's a. Um, well, you mentioned it, that when you were first sort of pitched on this, uh, there was a generation gap, and the younger 
uh, intelligence folks were kind of into it, and the older intelligence folks saw nothing but trouble. Um, is and then these things happened, and the results came out, and some of the young, I assume, pros that were privy to secret information still finding themselves less accurate than your amateurs on the outside uh, working in uh, what sound like very fun teams. Did that, do you sense that the younger people in the intelligence community are aware of this, paying attention to it, and as they grow, will they keep this as part of their skill set that they can count on in themselves and the others they work with? I, don't, I can't imagine change occurring any other way than through the younger generation. Okay. I, I, I think people who are well-positioned, well well-entrenched in their careers in middle age and above mm -hmm. uh, just have too much to lose. Um, plus, you know, we do get very accustomed to working in a certain way, right? So if you've been doing vague verbiage forecasting for 20 or 30 years and someone comes along and wants to encourage you to start using probability ranges, uh, it, 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 it's, it really is going to run against the grain. Never trust anybody over 50. <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are many versions of that. <laughs> are there, so, uh, okay, we're talking about U.S. intelligence. U.S. intelligence is a competitive organization up against basically other intelligence organizations, both allied and, and potentially uh, adversary, China, Russia, and so on. Uh, is there any sense of how any of this is playing in any of the other players on the field? You know, Are they paying attention? I mean, you know, Danny Kahneman came basically out of the whole Israeli approach to military and intelligence and things like that. I think that's right. I, th I think uh, Kahneman and Tversky advised Israeli intelligence going back to the 1970s and mm -hmm. I think did encourage them to use probability mm -hmm. estimates. Um, and I think that uh, other intelligence agencies in the Western world have shown some interest in um, uh, doing versions of this. I know mm -hmm. the Canadians, in particular, have been doing versions of this. Um, but um, who cares if Canadians are right about these things? Well, <laughs> the Canadians. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I, I was originally born in Canada, so. At any rate, we're all. <laughs> Um, looks like Creon Levitt asks, can you cite some example successes and failures of the best super forecasters and, and sort of what happens then? Because you're pointing out the whole thing is you're not blame game, it's learning. So right. the super forecasters are super right and super wrong, what happens then? And you have some examples of when they were? Um. The super forecasters are sometimes super wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things I've been struck by, it, it is indeed the wrong question, of course, right? because we don't want, it's, we don't want to get into the Nostradamus thing of you know, what, 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 are, what, are, what are your greatest hits. What makes the super forecasters super is the fact that on average, over a large set of questions, the gaps between probability and reality shrink. Mm -hmm. They don't typically shrink dramat that dramatically, but they sh over time and with enough judgments, the percentage improvement it does become quite substantial. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're, they're still only assigning 75% probability roughly to things that happen and 25% to things that don't. They're not saying 97% and 3%. Mm -hmm. um, but he here's one of the things I am struck by with respect to super forecasters, and, and I, I can compare it to my own intuitions. Uh, they're often surprisingly extreme. Uh, they're, not, they're, not that, they're not chickens. <laughs> you don't win a forecasting tournament by loitering for a long time around maybe. You only win a forecasting tournament by being justifiably decisive. Um, so an example of this, where they turned out to be on the right side of maybe, and I turned out 
to me, I think, slightly on the wrong side of maybe, um, was uh, the debate over whether Greece would leave the Eurozone this summer. Uh, those of you who you know, study, follow political economy or in finance know that there was a big deal over that. And um, the super forecasters were really very insistent. I was struck by how insistent they were that it was a low probability event. Their, their, their estimates were often 20, 15 percent or so, that, their chance. Um, I, I think the modal estimates for uh, Bloomberg consensus panels and things like that, I think they were significantly higher than that. And I think my own estimate was significantly higher. I think it was around 50% or so, maybe a little higher than that, that Greece was leaving the Eurozone. What made them so, so confident that this was not going to occur? Um, well, I think their, their argument was, A, this is, if forced currency conversions are relatively rare events. Uh, they've been through this, we've been through this cycle many times with Greece already, and it hasn't happened. And uh, we're focusing too much on the secondary players, like the finance ministers of, of, of Greece and Germany, uh, who, and, and, the, and some of the intemperate things they're saying, and we're not focusing enough on the primary players, and we're also not focusing on the fact that there's something missing on the Greek side. They don't have a plan B. Um, and so there, there were various things that were, that were leading them, I think, to, to the view that, that they were gonna, <laughs> the Eurozone and Greece were going to have to find some way to accommodate this, and, and the accommodation was essentially Greece capitulating in the end. Um, but th they were very confident of that, and I I I was, I've, I've often been struck when, when I've looked at their, 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 the streams of their forecast that they are, they are quite aggressive. Uh, and in fact, when you look at, when I was talking about the extremizing algorithm and how, um, how it helps to enhance accuracy, you don't really need to extremize super forecasters because when super forecasters work huh. effectively together in teams, they self-extremize, um, which is an interesting, it, 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 but they're, they're intellectually aggressive. And um, you mentioned that the, the teams and, and the diversity was important. Peter Schwartz, a long-time scenario planner, Asked, how do you judge adequate diversity, and, and sort of how does how does that actually work that it, that it plays well? Because um, this is sort of you know beyond crowdsourcing, it's into a kind of a selective yeah. uh, range inducing into the process. It, it, it is well. You, you, one of the proverbs of hell is you never know you've had enough until you've had more than enough. And excessive diversity, of course, leads to excessive. It leads to factionalism and, and disintegration of groups. Well, that's interesting. Um, uh, but it, you know, it, it, healthy diversity is, of course, what is what checks groupthink and 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 you know produces that vigorous dialectic of arguments that produces well calibrated judgments. Um, it's an art. I don't. I, I said the book is called the art and science of, of forecasting. I, I think we're talking about art here. We're not talking about science. Um, no, I, no, I don't think anybody knows ex ante how to how to how to strike that balance. Um, it, it's it's something you learn to do with experience. And if you're doing it really explicitly, like in the form of probabilistic forecasting, I think you're going to learn to do it faster than if you're doing it implicitly, like vague verbiage forecasting. Kevin Hart asks, what's the influence of the consequences, the seriousness of being wrong or of being right? Does that sort of skew the reasoning? Um, and, you know, is it the difference between the, your amateur forecasters and somebody in the position of President Obama? That's right. Um, I think that's a, an excellent point. And uh, forecasting tournaments are pure accuracy games. They're purely about the accuracy of your probability judgments. Um, if you are an, an intelligence analyst and you miss uh, a secret effort by the Iranians 
to enrich uranium and fast-track the development of an atomic weapon despite the nuclear accord. If you miss that, um, you know that the career damage to you is going to be substantially greater than the career damage of crying wolf. I love that. Um, there's going to be career damage both ways, but in one case, the career damage is going to be greater. Mm -hmm. So why not shift your probability estimates so as to minimize career damage? That's because the intelligence analysts in the real world are not playing a pure accuracy game. They're mm -hmm. playing a, a political survival game, mm -hmm. and that's entirely natural. Uh, forecasting tournaments are extremely artificial. They, they, they take the politics out of political judgment. Uh, it is purely a matter of accuracy. Mm -hmm. That's all that matters. That's, you're, you're only, you're, all that matters is your Breyer score. It doesn't matter whether your Breyer score is derived on one set of questions or another set of questions. Um, now, you can, always, you can carve things up in a way that reflects that, uh, but it's still going to be a pure accuracy game. In, in decision theory, you're supposed to distinguish between probabilities and utilities, um, and... Uh, that forecasting tournaments are very much in that spirit. You, you, the, the, the president should be given the, the probabilities, and the president and other elected officials, it's their job to insert the value judgments. It's not the in, Intelligence analysts aren't supposed to be making the value judgments. They're, mm -hmm. supposed, they're supposed to be simply just the facts man. Right, right. Uh, that's, the, that's the in principle division of labor. I think most people would say, well, we really don't want the CIA making the value judgments for us. I mean, for better or for worse, it's supposed to be the elected representatives who mm -hmm. are doing that. Um, even if whatever you might think of their competence, you, you think that there should they, they, those are the guys who were elected to do that. Right. Um, so. It does raise the question of, <clears throat> you're making a great source for, a great case for crowdsourcing here. Isn't democracy sort of uh, existing grand form of crowdsourcing and this is somehow match with democracy? Um, Democracy is indeed a form of crowdsourcing, uh, but accuracy is often a decidedly secondary consideration in the selection of um, um, uh, uh, elected officials. Um, <laughs> here's uh, the only question I've got that doesn't have a name on it. Uh, asks, is there a gender difference in forecasters? Not that we have found. Good to hear. Um, this, I know where this one is. No, going. that doesn't mean there isn't. It, 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 it me, what it means is we, we haven't been able to find one given the popul research population we have and given the questions that have been posed. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's quite possible there are domains in which... There domains are, that could be, But, yeah. but we, we haven't... We have, our study wasn't well designed to test that hypothesis. Right. So I, 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 don't, I don't think you should take my answer as being particularly diagnostic. And, and indeed, have tournaments like this been done on other than geopolitical event level? Uh, for example, within an industry, a corporation doing, uh, attempting to do forecasting within its industry. Uh, yes. Have, have there been tournaments like that? Uh, increasingly so, yes. Uh, the, I, I think there is a... I, 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 uh, the Good Judgment Project was a public sector research initiative that has a private sector spin-off, Good Judgment Incorporated, that does indeed deal with private sector entities, and there is... I think significant interest in um, Wall Street and in some other sectors of the economy uh, in running internal forecasting tournaments. Okay, yeah. so there's two measures of success of that. What's the company called? Uh, What's I, your I, uh, which company? Okay. I, I'm, the, not, the, I'm the, not sure I'm supposed to mention specific companies. But <laughs> you're not? No, probably not. <laughs> if you look up, you know, 
Good judgment. I'll bet you find an incorporated somewhere out there. Well, well, good, uh, good judgment incorporated exists, yeah. Yeah, but I'm not sure. I, I can mention the companies that they deal with. They're, they're oh, that use it. Okay, right. Yeah. Of course yeah. not. Yeah. But um, th there's sort of two measures of success of that company. One, that it has customers and they pay and it gets to continue to be a company. The other one is will be your scientific perspective on uh, they are out there doing this stuff and getting results. And um, two things. One is, it, you know, are they being interestingly predictive on, in the way that they were on this global geopolitical events thing? And are the organizations perhaps less slowly than the intelligence community uh, being moved by this good forecasting within the company to do better in their business? Right. Um, those are really hard questions to answer because it may be, for example, that the companies that are most interested in doing this are companies that are having trouble. <laughs> right. So you're not, you don't have random assignments. So of the measure would be they don't them. have as much trouble anymore. Right? Right, right. Or are they already doomed and that's is just part of their death spiral? Right. Well, it's a very tricky thing to measure. They can certainly measure whether their people are becoming more accurate. I think the mo most direct test would be whether or not over time their people learn to do this better. Mm -hmm. uh, now, how successful the companies are in translating improved probability estimation at different levels of staff into mm. improved corporate execution and strategy, that's another matter. Right? That's, uh, Here's a question, I think I know where it's going. Array asks, what do pundits look like in a forecasting tournament literate world? What would pundits look what like? What do pundits look like in a forecasting tournament literate world? That is, as uh, this becomes the sort of standard way things are done and thought about, oh. which, by the way, we've seen with scenario planning, which you know got really going about 30 years ago, and I was part of Global Business Network, and we taught scenario planning, and by and by, we, we taught our way out of a business because scenario planning was you know the way a lot of planning was done in fairly large organizations. Um, so it is completely possible that the kind of literacy you've been teaching us about tonight becomes... Generic, people have that. And the question is, um, how does punditry uh, possibly change in that world? And this might lead to a proposal that you made to be doing crowdsourced pundit judgments. Right, right. Um, it, it, it would be a quite different world. Uh, it, it would be a world in which pundits would be uh, embarrassed about um, saying ah. that X could or might or may happen, they would feel some normative obligation to be more precise about that. Um, so if I understand, let me see if I get what would embarrass them. They're out there doing these weasel words, saying that you know, there could, there's a, a probability of so and so, and not saying what probability that such and such could happen, but they're sort of saying it, it's, it's their soft way of saying it's going to happen. Well, and then you want to have you want to put numbers on that, and then have them by, be embarrassed by what results. It's, well, punditry is an art form, and mm -hmm. it, it, to 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 be a, a viable to have a viable long term career as a pundit, you have to become very adept at appearing to go out on a limb without actually going out on a limb. Mm -hmm. So you have to be you, 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 <laughs> you have to be say, saying things that sound very emphatic about you know what 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 dreadful what the dreadful consequences of Obamacare might be or the dreadful consequences of this or that might be mm. you have to be very emphatic but it but they have to be vague consequences 
and they have to be linked with vague, 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 vague terms, elastic probability terms that, mm -hmm. that, that cover both sides of maybe. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you, you conjure up vivid images, uh, but, but they're, they're rather vague, and mm -hmm. they're linked with even, even vaguer probability uh, connectors. Mm -hmm. um, and you, 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 you can create the appearance that you're saying something really pretty decisive in the audience, uh, but you haven't really said very much at all when it comes to later inspecting your forecast, in quotation marks, and assessing how accurate or inaccurate it was. So how would you get a grip on their uh, slipperiness to embarrass them anyway? Well, the, the approach we're, we're thinking about right now is giving uh, the... Uh, to, to, to take a cross-section of major liberal, centrist, and conservative pundits uh, and taking their arguments and giving them to panels of intelligent readers and ask those intelligent readers to translate the vague verbiage forecasts into numerical equivalents and then to take the midpoint range and use that as a probability estimate in a forecasting tournament and say, okay, the imputed probability that Larry Summers is assigning to a 2% slowdown in the global economy in 2016 is 66% uh, right now, hmm. or 43%, or whatever hmm. it might be. Um, and in, in, with an invitation, of course, to Larry Summers, whoever the pundit might be, to you know, please correct us. If you think our intelligent panel of readers got it wrong, you know, <laughs> tell, tell, tell us how, we, how, how, how they got it wrong, and then we'll, we'll, we'll insert the correct number. But the, our, the, 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 be, the best guess an intelligent panel of readers can do from mm -hmm. what you've given them, is mm -hmm. a probability range like this, and we're taking the midpoint, and now we're going to put you in competition with the, with, the, with the unwashed masses and with the super forecasters and so forth. So what um, you want is public byplay between these uh, pundits who are getting aside numbers mm -hmm. by the panel, yeah. and uh, the pundits see this assigned number, 66% or whatever, that I now am confident mm -hmm. X is going to happen, and you're basically inviting them to adjust that number. That's right. I think if there were, if we had an, <laughs> That's ad, if, we had a, if we had an adequate, <laughs> right, if we had an adequate media megaphone, that could be done. And I mm -hmm. think that would move us into a world in which mm -hmm. pundits would feel under greater normative obligation to be more reasonably precise. Um, yeah. And I and I think in the, the process of doing that would be would 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 would, would be to, to make it more embarrassing to make e extreme or polarizing claims. Hmm. I, 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 I think unnecessarily polarized debates would somewhat depolarize it. And I think we should be able to show that's true experimentally in, 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 in laboratory tests, but I think we should also be able to show it in tournaments in the real world that that effect can be, can be produced. Uh, because it becomes, more, you're shifting the incentives. The, in, the accuracy becomes more important than showing fealty to your tribe. Mm -hmm. and, um, that I mean, would be a big shift. Aha. Accuracy versus loyalty. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and I gather that you're pitching this idea of, uh, of pundit judging panels to various potential media players. We're going to be pitching it to anyone who might listen. Because huh? <laughs> The Economist or Bloomberg or somebody could offer this as a, a very fun game to watch. I think this could be turned into a fun game, yes. I love it. Um, Arvind asks, can forecasting tournaments do prediction chains to enable some seriously accurate long-term thinking? How does this, I mean, the, the, one of the things is to have a tournament, you sort of are probably not going to do it mostly on 20-year <laughs> predictions because it takes a long time to get through one round of the game. 
Um, so my understanding of, of the ones that you were doing with IRPOs are sort of on the half a year to year and a half level, something like That's that. That's right. But having gotten results from that, and some confidence from that, and technique from that, and the stuff that's in the super forecasting book, can one now confidently take on perhaps more important, uh, or equally important, but longer term issues? That's a great point. Um, I, I don't know what the answer, my, my earlier work on expert political judgment indicated that when you have thoughtful experts trying to assign realistic probabilities to events five to 10 years out, that they have a very hard time doing better than the proverbial dart-throwing chimp. Mm -hmm. uh, that accuracy really does degrade fairly mm -hmm. rapidly uh, over time, and that the zone, the sweet spot zone within which we've been able to imp achieve improvements in accuracy is more this six to 18 month range. Mm. Uh, and, and it, it, but moving, I, 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 my, the, uh, we don't have uh, this fully calibrated, but I, it, it would seem to be that accuracy does fall off moderately precipitously as you move further out. Uh, the analogy you might use is, is, is shuffling a deck of cards. You have, a, you have a, a perfectly organized deck of cards when, when you get it, when, you, when mm -hmm. you buy it, and how many times you have to shuffle it so that there's no information contained in that deck. Uh, and well, according to the magician Percy uh, Diaconis, I think the answer is seven. <laughs> seven seven uh, proper shuffles will be enough to, to, to eliminate. So it says how many times, the, given the evidence we have now, given the mm -hmm. world as now, uh, how, how many, and randomness gradually accumulates each, each day, each week, each month, each year. You have this accumulation of randomness that's analogous to an accumulation of shuffles. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the earlier work suggested that at five years out, on the kinds of questions we were asking, it was very difficult for people to say anything more than you know, vague platitudes that were true. Um, so, well, uh, let me distinguish a couple kind of questions. Say 2050. Uh, 35 years out. Uh, one could ask one kind of question, will the civil war in Islam uh, between the fundamentalists and the modernists, between Shia and Sunni, be over? Yes. That would be a very interesting, profound question, and it policy would. might reflect and mm -hmm. so on, but a squishy one. Yep. Uh, one could also ask an equally important question of will the population of, uh, the human population of the world be uh, 9 billion? Yeah. or not in uh, 2050. Fair enough. Which would be a happen, not happen kind of thing. Yeah, no, no, I, 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 I see where you're going with that. And um, yes, uh, I, I think there is, this is the, the excuse, the, excuse the academic jargon, this is like the accumulation of weak diagnosticity evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, so if the territory controlled by ISIL Mm -hmm. uh, in Iraq and Syria, just for sake of argument, if that territory, uh, by U.S. intelligence estimates, has contracted by, say, 15% by the end of 2016, or 25% by the end of 2016, or uh, that would be suggestive that we're on track toward a somewhat more peaceful relationship between uh, the Shia and Sunni communities mm -hmm. within this, within Islam. Um, does it does it? Yeah, so it would, it would cause me to increase my probability of the 2015, 2050 event. Um, not maybe by a very large amount, but mm -hmm. by a significant... By, I, I think it would make it... Uh, yes, I think that is a useful way to proceed. I, 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 it, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the 
Uh, we were talking before the show, you were saying something about the relationship between short-term and longer-term um, forecasting and, and the question of coherence. Um, could you say a little more about that? Well, one of the uh, interesting criticisms of this work has come uh, from... Uh, I mean, I've had an interesting argument with Nassim Taleb about the, the, this, this whole exercise, and he was gracious enough to serve as an advisor for this project for a period of time. Uh, but I think he's deeply skeptical about the value of trying to improve probability estimates in the short range um, when given the emphasis he puts on uh, extreme long-range, longer-term tail risk. Uh, in a forecasting tournament like this, it's like the eye chart. Uh, we can help you see the third or fourth lines more clearly, but we can't help you see things that are microscopically small, mm -hmm. and we can't help you see around corners. There are things that are just, we just are, not, are not possible. Um, so Nassim Taleb's view is that encouraging optimism about improving forecasting um, has the net effect of um, diluting people. Mm -hmm. thinking that they can do things that are, uh, they're, they're really not going to be able to f do any better with black swans mm -hmm. because of, because of this, this good judgment project research. And if, if, if people are deluded, if, if people draw that conclusion from this research, they, they, will, be, they will have been ill-served. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think it is true that what we're talking about here is improving the accuracy of judgments between the 2 and the 98% range. Uh, we're not talking about what improving your ability to discriminate uh, events that are one in 10,000 probability versus one in a trillion probability. Um, so that said, uh, what can be done about these extreme low probability events that you know, could indeed have, where a lot of the catastrophic scenarios are, are concentrated. Mm -hmm. uh, what, can, what can we do? Uh, can we just say, well, I, I would argue this research is valuable even if the answer is nothing. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's valuable to be able to see things <laughs> in this range more clearly than previously possible. Uh, but I think there are some limited things you can do, even in the 1 out of 10,000 to 1 trillion range. But they're not assessing empirical accuracy, because you'd have to run the forecasting tournament for centuries, probably, to you to get any degree of empirical traction. We'll do that. Well, that's right, for the Long Lo Lo Now Foundation. But even then, even, even so, you, all other things aren't going to be equal, so you're going to mm -hmm. have to develop ways of um, you know, allowing people to update frequently. Um, well, there was so a question that, an interesting paradox happened uh, a couple of years ago, which was that meteorologists have calibrated their predictions to uh, a high degree, and people have sort of gotten used to, uh, you know, like with betting and, and sports, the idea that there's going to be a 70% chance of rain uh, tomorrow. Yep. And, uh, in fact, that was predicted a week ago, and 70%, oh, wow, and probably will happen. Right. Probably will happen. Um, and yet meteorologists, uh, when climate change was sort of at its most, is it really happening, is it not really happening, was at its peak four or five years ago, meteorologists were going on their television shows and saying, uh, this climate change stuff is all baloney. I'm a meteorologist, you can trust me. And We can't uh, see more than 10 days out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, was this a, uh, an incoherence issue? Was this, uh, were they taking their, hmm, taking their confidence in the 10-day frame that they had built up over decades of good scientific and you know, follow-through, and imagining that that confidence now applied to the 10 years plus, which is where climate change begins. Uh, and was this just a, 
a misapplication of their becoming over-specifically uh, smart. Um, you know, you're really, this is a technical question in a field that I don't really have expertise in. I, I, I'm going to punt on that one. I'm, not, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm neither a meteorologist nor a climatologist. Mm -hmm. and I, I, I honestly don't know where weather ends and climate begins. Um, well, I'll tell you one thing that's <laughs> absent from the, a lot of the climate debate is uh, percentages. Mm -hmm. And so there's pretty much the folks that are saying it, it's, uh, it's really happening, it's really happening fast, it's really going to be horrible. And then a few people who are referred to as skeptics saying uh, it's really happening. It may not be happening as fast and it may not be as horrible as we think. Mm -hmm. And then there's the deniers who are in a different world. Um, it, neither one of those first two categories I've mentioned have gone into percentage mode yet that I've seen. Well, I mean, you, know, you sort of have the range of scenarios the IPCC comes out with, and those have percentages on them, which are mm -hmm. a little strange. Um, but I haven't seen it in, 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 the, in the terms that you're putting where they, they narrow to something. They just say there's these six scenarios and you know, the various percentages they might occur. Um, I'd like to see this percentage approach it's so popular and well understood in poker and in, and in sports. Uh, I think this is a good spectator sport and it's a good participant sport. And maybe you could end with saying something about uh, the open invitation you're making to crowdsourcing forecasting. Well, I, th I think so many of our policy debates would look so different if, if um they were approached in a super forecaster mentality. Mm -hmm. um, if you consider the recent brouhaha over Syrian refugees, for example, mm. um, you've got the usual ideological kabuki dance going on. You've, you've got um, Republican nasty xenophobes, and you've got Democratic politically correct ostriches, and one side is not willing to acknowledge that ISIL is infiltrated, it's likely to be infiltrating Syrian refugee flows, the other side is not willing to acknowledge you're going to be killing lots of innocent people. Um, and no, the, 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 this is how we do debates nowadays. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very hard for us, I think, to see ourselves in a long, in a long time frame. I think when we look back at the Salem witch trials, we see primitivism and mob bizarre mob, superstitious, ridiculous thinking, um, how are we going to be judged 400 years from now on how we do political debate? Uh, and I, 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 I'm not, will history be any kinder to us than we, we are to the Salem witch trial judges? Um, we, we, we have remarkably primitive ways of conducting debate. Mm. A lot of the things we do in a, in a debate, like the Syrian refugee flows, for, for example, we, we, we just don't want to be discomfited by really nasty trade-offs. No, none of us really wants to think, oh, well, how, much, how many innocent Syrians would we will, be, will, be willing to let die in order to reduce by some delta increment the probability of one American death from an ISIL-related terrorism incident? Um, that's not a preferred way of thinking. Um, we, we, do, we don't want to think about what the possible base rates are of infiltration, what our detection rates are, what the risks are, what other measures could be taken. Uh, there's, a, there's a disinclination to think in a rigorous analytical way about these things. And even for many people, it feels cold-blooded. Uh, but I think uh, you're, much, you're, you're going to save many more lives uh, in the long run if you're willing to be honest about the, the assumptions you're making about risk 
and the trade-offs you're willing to make. Um, I, I can't imagine what would happen to an American politician who just talked the way I, I did. I mean, it would be... <laughs> Uh, it would be it would be bizarre. Uh, actually, <laughs> our, our governor has a lot of that quality, but um, as, um, but he's unusual in that respect, and yet he keeps getting voted in, having some of those qualities. The Danny Kahneman uh, spoke in the series a while back about thinking slow and fast, and uh, interesting thing about him is he's such a pessimist. And you say, God, Danny, it's incredible. You're, you know, Nobel Prize. Your book's an incredible bestseller. And he says, Yeah, but people only read the first hundred pages. <laughs> <laughs> and he's he's kind of bleak about thinking that system two, uh, you know, the the rational uh, thinking through process will will win in the yeah. end. Are you that pessimistic? Um, well, he's influenced me in many ways. I mean, we're colleagues for, for years at Berkeley, and he, he's, he's influenced both Barb's thinking and my thinking about this. Um, and the, some of the training systems we developed for improving forecasting were, I think, quite explicitly modeled on aspects of Danny's work, and, and, and they work. I mean, they do, they do improve judgment to an appreciable degree. Not earth-shattering degree, but we're talking about improvements, say, in the vicinity of 10%, uh, which is not bad for a training module that lasts only about 50 minutes and produces better <laughs> probability judgments over, an, if, over a forecasting year. Um, That's great. It's pretty. It's pretty good. Uh, um, but you know, it's 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 moving. What, what's you know, you can you can shrug your shoulders and say, well, okay, it's moving people from saying seventy three percent to seventy six percent, or <laughs> on the right side of maybe. Uh, these 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 will look like modest changes to many people, but cumulatively they make a difference. Um, but but yeah, the short answer is, I think we are somewhat more optimistic about the feasibility of debiasing uh, than Danny. I think he comes from a more... Debiasing, what's that? Well, eliminating judgmental bias, uh, overconfidence or belief perseverance or you know, the, 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 er the, er the errors that follow from over-reliance on his heuristics. Okay. Uh, there are ways of... Uh, we're, we're somewhat more optimistic that there are ways of doing that. Um, but if you come from a more perceptual tradition where you see these things as analogous to optical illusions, which, you know, optical illusions remain optical illusions even after you, you know, explain to people that why they're optical illusions, even after you pull out rulers and say, look, it's really, they're really the same length, you, if people still see, them as, still see them incorrectly. And if you think of these cognitive biases as analogous to that, and I think he does to a large degree, you're going to be pessimistic. It just follows naturally from that from those psychological assumptions. If you, if you see these uh, errors as more analogous to uh, error, co computational errors that people make uh, in, in, in language or in arithmetic or whatnot, then um, you're going to be somewhat more um, optimistic. So in a sense, I mean, there's these limitations that individual cognitive capabilities have, but you're suggesting there's social cognitive capabilities that can recognize and overcome those individual limitations? I, 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 yes, I, I do believe you can create social worlds in which people are induced to become more reflective and self-critical and they will be less susceptible to bias. I think forecasting tournaments are one type of world like that. I think there are other ways of creating worlds like that as well. And um, I'm, I, I, I suspect, I, here, here's my, here's my long-term prediction for long now, which you can open up in the year 2515. Uh, and that is when the, 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 uh, the audience in 2515 will look back at the audience in 20, 20, 2015 and their level of contempt for how we go about judging political debate will be roughly comparable to the level of contempt that we have for the Salem Witch Trials. Right. We'll see. We'll see if that's true. <laughs>
Okay, so noted. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>